be singing 923 in just a little bit. Man, winter's not done with us yet, is it? And uh, I keep thinking, uh, and I'm just about out of wood. <laughs> uh, but don't worry, I'll, I'll stay. I have ways of staying warm without having wood. So don't anybody get excited, okay? Um, God is good all the time. And he is good. He's being good to us today. And I, I want to say, I, it's just so good to be here this morning. I, um, I don't guess I'd want to have church every day, but, you know. <laughs> no, I really wouldn't. I, 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 the preacher admits that. Even the elders would say that. We don't have church every day, okay. But it is good when we have our times, we can come together and uh, be gathered at the throne of God. And as we were singing that song on Zion's Glorious Summit, that's one of my favorite songs, and uh, it's based off of, uh, well, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and, and that was the vision that, uh, that Isaiah was given. He saw the throne of God. He saw the train filling the temple, and then over in Revelation, it's chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 13, the 24 elders and the, all the four living creatures all gathered around the throne, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you know, someday, I don't know if we're going to be singing on Zion's Glorious Summit that song, but I think we're going to join in with the, those words, holy, holy, holy. It won't be any work to that. I think we'll just, uh, it will just come so naturally. And uh, I'm looking forward to that time. Look, uh, i got to tell you a couple things here before we get started. Number one, um, this is a little bit of silliness, but uh, we're going to do it anyway. Um, Wednesday night is bib Bible study. Do you know what that means? If you've got a pair of bibs, you're going to wear them Wednesday night because it's bib Bible study. Me and Trevor Nickel got together on this about two weeks ago. Trevor, Trevor likes my bibs. I like his bibs. I said, let's have bib Bible study one Wednesday night. And John's, John's in it already. Hey, he's, he's with the program already. And uh, some of you others are too. But just one Wednesday night. Let's just, if you've got a pair of bibs, wear them, okay? And then we'll just laugh and have a good time and have a great, uh, it, it'll make something kind of special. And the other thing I want to tell you is tonight is the beginning of our home groups. And I hope... <laughs> I hope you're ready, um, and I just wanted to say this uh, to our group leaders. This first session tonight is probably one of the most challenging lessons that uh, we have had in our home groups. He's going to say some things uh, in the presentation that, frankly, uh, I don't necessarily agree with, and, uh, and I'm just counting on you guys, uh, the leaders and those of you who are discussing, Feel free to react. Feel free to go in a different direction. I mean, feel free uh, anytime. Uh, I, I don't care what, what session it is or if you're here. You've got to use your own mind. You've got to use your own brain. Here. God, that's why God gave you uh, the ability to think and to reason and to understand. And uh, you, don't, you don't have to believe anything because I say it or because someone says it. You have to believe what's in the Word. And, and God is depending on you to use your eyes and your brain to read to understand and to do the best you can to apply it. And I just want to say about tonight, uh, 
I, I cannot endorse everything the uh, presenter says, but I just want you to listen carefully and evaluate. And I think the main point he makes is valid, uh, but it's the application of it that I, that I have some problem with. So I'm going to be teaching the class over here in the in the annex. If you're interested in what what I'm think talking about, you can come there. But I, I really want you to go to the home groups and, and enjoy that. And um, I, th I think you'll see what I'm talking about when, when we get there. All right. The Bible starts with this one statement: Genesis chapter one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, okay, Matt, if you're going to be with me, you got to get that up there. All right, good. We're all on the same page now. <laughs> it starts with this st statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That tells us two things, and maybe, maybe a whole lot more than that, but it tells us, first of all, there was a beginning. And secondly, it tells us that God was there in the beginning, and he is responsible for that beginning. There's a couple reasons, I believe, why this verse comes first in our Bibles. And I've explained this to many people along the way in, in private Bible studies. But if you can read this verse and say, yes, I believe, then you're qualified to read verse 2, verse 3, 4, 5. You're, you're qualified to read the rest of the Bible. But if you can't read that first verse, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and say, I believe that, you might as well just quit right there. <laughs> okay, You're done. Because you've got to decide, first of all, is there a God? And is he responsible for all this? And if you can't get there, the Bible's not necessarily for you. Okay? So the first verse is the gateway, and you've got to figure out when you read that first verse, yeah, I do believe that, or no, I don't know. But I, I think that's why it's there. There's a second reason why I think it's there. If you can read this verse and you say, yes, I believe, then I can make you a promise. I can promise you that nothing you're going to read in the rest of the Bible will test your faith any more than that one verse. The Bible is full of miracles, but none of them are as amazing and as stupendous as the ones described in Genesis 1 and verse 1. If you can buy that verse, man, the Bible is for you. It's your book, and you're ready to read. The Bible doesn't offer us any uh, formal proof of the existence of God. It's just kind of assumed. There we are. Very, the very first thing we encounter is, that, hey, tells us there's a God. No, no proof offered. It says there's a God. The closest thing to proof you're going to find in the Bible would be in verses like, uh, let's, let's put this one up, Romans 1, 18 through 20. This is where the Apostle Paul is trying to explain how every person on the planet is responsible to God. Whether they have a Bible or whether they have any idea, any written revelation from God or not, he said everybody on planet Earth is responsible to God, and here's why. And so it starts here like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, how and when did God make his will known to all these people? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. They said there's nobody who will not be, who is not accountable to God at some very basic level to understand that he exists, and what, his, uh, what his character is, what, what, what he's about. And so there's nobody on the planet who can say, well, I didn't know anything. 
No, we do know. And the way we know is by looking at God's creation. That's what Paul says here. And so, you know, we, we, we read verses like that, and, and there's a kind of a proof of the existence of God in that verse. And then in Psalms 19, verses 1 through 4, another one of my uh, favorite verses, and, and this was in our bulletin this morning. Uh, Psalm 19 and 1 is right there. This is the one that says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the firmament, or the skies, the heavens, shows his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. And so... It, <laughs> There it is. He said, hey, the heavens, just look up. They are declaring the glory of God. And whether it's day or night, we're being told in in no uncertain terms, there's a creator, there's a God who is responsible for all this. It says there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. There's no words that are being spoken. This is something that when people see it, they, they begin to think those thoughts. Their line has gone out into all the earth, their word to the end of the world. Wherever you are on the planet, you can see the evidence for the existence of God. So, no formal proof, but you will find verses like this in the Bible. And I want to talk to you about the existence of God this morning. This is not something, it's probably been ages since I actually uh, said anything about this, because I know, uh, truth be told, probably 100% of us here this morning believe in in God. But it doesn't hurt to stop every now and then and just kind of confirm that. And say some things along that line. I want to talk to you about the existence of God this morning. The reason, uh, I've been suspicious that one of the reasons the Bible does not offer a formal proof of the existence of God is because in 1500 B.C., about the time when Genesis 1-1 was written, there was no one in the world who doubted the existence of God. No one. That was just part part of, uh, of everybody's thinking. There was no need for arguing for the existence of God. The world did not question the existence of any God. The only debate that was going on in the world at that time was who was the most powerful God. But in our modern times, there are some who doubt the existence of God or any spiritual being. And I'm referring to a poll that was made by uh, the Harris Poll people back in November of 2013. And they tell us that 74% of the U.S. population believe in the existence of God. Those numbers are way down from what I remember back 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago. In fact, uh, mention is made in the article I was looking at that in 2003 it was 82%, but that's still low compared to what I remember reading uh, in, in days gone by. And, and there has been a general decline in, in belief in all things spiritual over the last however many years, over the last few decades. And I, I, don't, I don't expect that to necessarily uh, quit. Uh, I think there's going to continue to be an erosion of belief. And I want to lay alongside of that the percentages for church attendance. What's interesting to me is even though the belief in the existence of God has gone down, church attendance is about where it always was. And about 40% of the people in the United States say they attend regularly. There are some indications that the more accurate number is more like about 20% on any given Sunday uh, of our population will be in a church somewhere. But I, I just noticed the differential here between those who say they believe in God, 74 75%, but only 20% make it to church. Kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think it says a lot about what kind of faith it is that people have. If you have a faith that doesn't uh, somehow affect your day-to-day activity, 
if you have a faith that doesn't somehow get you to a worship service on a, on a fairly regular basis where you worship that God, then you're what is known by a lot of people as a practical atheist. In other words, you believe in a God, but, but your belief in a God doesn't make any practical difference as to how you spend your time or what you're doing with yourself. It doesn't affect your Sundays. It doesn't affect uh, other things. So you may not be an atheist, but you are a practical atheist because it does not make any big difference. All right, so there's a lot of practical atheists here in the United States, and some of them go to church. Now, we're talking about the existence of God here this morning, and there's one thing about God that makes this issue so hard for us, and that is that God cannot be seen or touched or smelled or heard. It would be a whole lot easier if you could actually see him, touch him, if you could actually, you know, somehow do that. But you can't put him under a microscope. You can't subject him to any kind of scientific test. And the Bible tells us that God is a spirit. It's John 4 and verse 24. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There it is. And then the Bible also says that no man has seen God at any time. This is John chapter 1, verse 18. This is John speaking in that, in that first chapter. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so uh, you know, the Bible tells us, you know, don't, don't expect to see him or touch him or smell him or, or whatever. He's a spirit. And as a matter of fact, no one has seen him at any time. There are some times in the Old Testament when the angel of Jehovah, which would be the physical manifestation of God at various times, but that's not God. That's just how he presents himself in order to deal with people. And so the angel of Jehovah shows up in the camp of Abraham in Genesis chapter 20, be 20, 21, right in there, 19, I believe it is. In chapter 19, he shows up there and eats with Abraham, but it was the angel of Jehovah. But anyway, uh, those things happen, but that, that's not God. That's just the, the uh, physical representation of God uh, where he deals with people. But the fact that we cannot see or touch God certainly doesn't mean that, that he doesn't exist. There's all kinds of things which exist which cannot be seen or touched. Things like love, for instance. I mean, uh, who would doubt the existence of love or hate or honor or conscience or humor? or freedom, or truth. Or we could go off into another area. There are things uh, that, that have existed. We know they existed, but they're in history. So they're not exactly subject to scientific inquiry or whatever. But we know they happen. We know these things happen. We know these things exist because we see their effects. And basically, we know that God exists, not because we can see him, but because we see his effects, we see his works, we see his handiwork. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1, those verses we read a little while ago. In Psalm chapter uh, 19, verses 1 through 4, uh, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. For a moment, I just want to, uh, I, I want to agree with the atheist. I want to agree with the unbeliever that there is no God. And I want to just pose it like this. Let's suppose we do agree that there is no God. If that is true then what does that mean and how does that square with reality and the laws of physics and other things that we know to be true? I mean, if we're going to say there's no God. And there's a couple big uh, points I want to make here as we talk about that. If there is no God, the material world then has had no beginner. There's been no beginning. 
our world has existed in some form forever. Now, there's one big problem with that. And that is it defies everything we know about our present world. Everything we know about our present world says that our world has not existed forever. That there has been a beginning. And if it has existed forever, we should have been done a long time ago. Every process that goes on in our world is slowing down. The world spins on its axis, tilted at 23 and a half degrees, uh, and 23 and a half degrees to the plane where, where, where it travels. And we know that by a very tiny fraction of a second, the spin of the earth is declining year by year. The earth travels around the sun once a year. And every time it goes around, it takes just a tiny fraction of a second longer to make the journey than it did the year before. The sun is very hot. It's a young star. There's lots of fuel left. But there is no doubt that our sun is smaller now than it was 100 years ago. Now, suppose we got another billion years or so to go before, we burn it, before it burns out. But there's no doubt. I mean, you think about it. Something is being consumed there. Something is burning up. Something is combusting. And so it's smaller now than it was 100 years ago. I think about the very uh, molecules that make up all of our world. And there's something about the molecules of our world that ought to, ought to clue us in on this, and that is they're all radioactive. There's, also, there's a, even a, a small amount of decay for every molecule. That's just how, how it is. We call that radioactivity. Every element has what they call a half-life, or it's radioactive. Even hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most stable and the simplest molecule that we know anything about. And there it is. It's a couple hydrogens and a, well, I'm, I'm talking about water now. <laughs> I don't want to get there. But anyway, uh, it's, it's the smallest and simplest and most stable of all of the elements that we have. But even hydrogen has a very small amount of decay going on within it. Now think about this. If our material universe has existed forever, and all the molecules in our universe have existed forever, that would be plenty of time for all the energy of our universe to be drained away, to finally have broken down to the point that, hey, we're just laying there like a big dumb dog, dead dog on the road. <laughs> Nothing left. No life. There are hot spots in our universe. And the laws of nature say that heat tends to dissipate into whatever surrounds it. In other words, if, you've got, if it's hot over here and it's cold over there, in the course of time, that heat will dissipate into those areas that are cold until there's an even temperature. And that, that's just how the laws of physics work. That's how our universe works. Well, our universe is still full of hot spots. If it had existed forever, there would be no hot spots in our universe. We would have reached that uniform temperature eons ago, and we wouldn't be here. And the reason I'm saying this is that, uh, you know, um, if you're going to say there is no God, no creator, you're kind of forced to that point of saying, well, that means everything has been here forever. But that doesn't work. Now, I'm, I'm telling you this because what got me started on this was about three weeks ago, I'm riding down the road listening to NPR. And on NPR, the science news come on. And uh, National Public Radio, they, they make this big news in the science world this week. And there, there are a couple, uh, a couple researchers based on quantum physics. Now, quantum physics is, now you've got to be really smart to do that stuff, okay? That, that's, that's math like I, I can't even imagine. 
But these guys are, are able to do this math, and based on their, their calculations, their quantum physics, some researchers, are you ready, are now saying that the universe has existed forever. I almost fell out of my car. <laughs> what? Based on their, uh, you need to go back and check the math again. Check your paper, okay? There's something wrong here because they, they've said, based on, on our calculations of, of, in quantum physics, we believe that the universe has existed forever. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, we're going to rely on our theoretical math to, to, to make that statement. So... Um, if you want to check this out, you can go to the NPR's website or you can go to a website called phys.org, phys.org, and you can, read the, you can read about this if you want to. But, you know, when I heard this, I, I immediately thought of the words in Romans chapter 1, 21 and 22. These are the words that follow the words I've already read to you. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. I think that word describes a lot of things going on in our society. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And I want these guys to go back and check their math. I think there may be a problem. The point I'm making is this, is the present condition of our universe, the laws of physics all say, that our world has not existed forever, that there has been a, been a beginning, and therefore there is a beginner. Here's the second thing that I want you to think about. If there is no God, then the order and complexity of the universe is not a product of intelligence and purpose and creative power, but it's simply the result of an incredible series of accidents that came in just the right order and did just exactly the right thing, and so here we are. It's just all an accident, a lot of accidents, that came in the right order. Now, this kind of reasoning doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, and, and I've said it like this many times. It takes much less faith for me to believe in a divine, eternal, creative being called God than it does to believe that we came from a long series of accidents that just happened just the right way over a long period of time. It takes much less faith to believe in God than to believe that. So, but let, let's just go on with this. You know, if you go out, um, find a camera, you examine the camera, you open it up, and you see design, you see things that are going on inside the camera, and it is reasonable, most people would say it would be reasonable to conclude that someone made the camera because we see the design. We could take the human eye, which is very much like a camera, in fact, more complex than a camera. And when the, the evolutionist, or sometimes the atheist, looks at the eye, he says, wow, isn't that amazing? Just random accidents over a long period of time. Just amazing. Yeah, that's really amazing. That's so amazing, I can't believe it. Um, if we look at a computer. And maybe we open it up, and we look inside of it, and we see what it does, and we see all these wonderful things it'll do, and... And, you know, uh, I, almost everybody would agree that the, uh, observing a computer, you would say uh, it's reasonable to conclude that someone made it, someone designed it, someone made it just the way that it is. 
But then we come to the human brain. And the same people might look at the human brain and say, well, hey, isn't that amazing? Just a random series of accidents over 13 billion years, and here we are. Just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's too amazing for me to believe it. I've, uh, I've been watching some of these, uh, some of these things happen on, on YouTube and other places. Artificial limbs. Have you seen this where they are at the point now where uh, they're able to create uh, limbs that function pretty much like the limbs of, you know, your, the real thing? And uh, the sensors and all that, they're able to make those interface with what's left of, of a person's nerve endings and all that and cause, cause those limbs to work. And it's just been amazing to watch that thing. But, you know, it, when you think about what went into that artificial limb to make it work and to make it function like it should, like a, like a real one, we all understand someone made it. But that same person who's saying that's, that's reasonable might look at the human leg or is looking at the human leg and perhaps saying, you know, isn't that amazing? Look how that leg works. That's just amazing how random accidents over eons of time have produced a thing that works like that. That's just great. Okay, I'm, I'm being a little bit... Uh, Smart alecky, but you're used to it, you know. Um, Anthony Flew. I'm going to put that name. You, maybe you've never heard of Anthony Flew, but he's a pretty famous guy. Uh, this particular man, from about 1960 up until about up until the time uh, uh, until about 2000, about 40 years, he was the foremost debating atheist in the world. He led the atheist movement, the, re the revival of it. He was the intellectual. That, that would meet and, and, and debate these things and so forth. He was the guy, Antony Flew. Well, uh, foremost debater, atheist debater of the 20th century, died in 2010. But here's the interesting thing about Antony Flew. In 2004, he gave up his atheist position. He wrote a book called There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. That's the subtitle of the book. There, there is a God. Now, this is, we're talking about the guy who led the movement here for, for 40 years. There is a God, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And he, he just details in that book why he changed his mind about the whole thing about God. He refers to Richard Dawkins, who is another big uh, atheist type guy, and Christopher Hitchens, and Stephen Hawking, and some of, the, some of these others who have gotten into this and uh, believe that uh, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools, okay? Uh, I'll just put it like that. But he refers to Richard Dawkins, who uh, wrote a book not too long ago called The God Delusion. And uh, in there in The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins argues that all of life can be attributed to, quote, lucky chance. And you know what Anthony Flew says about that book in his 2004 book? He refers to Dawkins' thing about lucky chance as comical. And these are the quotes. If that's the best argument you have, then the game is over. It was the evidence itself that led me to this conclusion. What Anthony Flew uh, finally realized is the argument from design, the complexity of, cannot be explained in terms of uh, random chance, accidents happening over time. That is, uh, those people who calculate probability have already said that that is a, an impossibility. It cannot happen. It's too much that has to be uh, brought to bear in the right order. But uh, Anthony Flew says, if that's the best argument you have, the game is over. It was the evidence itself that led me to this conclusion. 
And he says it was the argument from design. He says, I do not think that argument can be answered. That doesn't mean he became a Christian. He, he's not. He became a deist. Died in 2004. But here's, here's my point. There are billions of examples of order, complexity, design. All of them say clearly that this world was not a lucky series of uh, accidents over uh, 13 billion years of time. There's intelligence and design in our world, and therefore there is a designer and intelligence who is providing that. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, this is verses 13 and 14, and David is, is, is talking about himself, and he realizes, that, you know, I, I am a miracle. And he, he says this to God, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully. I'm awesome, God. You, man, you did some wonderful, amazing things in, in, in me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. David had taken the time to just observe creation and himself. And he says, you know, I'm a miracle. And you're responsible, God. And that's the, that's the argument from order and complex design. Now, let's move on a little further here. There are things about our world that say whoever made this world cared about the welfare and continued existence of this world. If you, when you begin to read in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, here's what you'll find out. It tells us that the world definitely has a beginning and a creator. But it says this, that this world was created for us. This world was created for us and that we have been created for this world. The first five days of creation, the first five and a half days of creation, God is busy putting things together and all, all, all creating, creating our world. And when, he, when he's got it all together, then he finally creates Adam and Eve. And what does he say to them? He says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all of creation, over all the earth. He said, I've made all this for you. This is yours. You're in charge. Take care of it. Go for it. And that's true. This world was made for us, and we have been made for this world. There's a, a uh, complementary nature that the Bible tells us about. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. David comes back to this. And, and there he is. He's out, out there looking up in the heavens. He says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, he's talking to God. The moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why would you pay any attention to us? We're such a small little piece of anything. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would visit him? And visit in the sense of provide for. That's what this word means. Why would you provide for us? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have set all things under his feet. He said, man, you made this whole thing, this whole planet. made it just for us. It fits us so well. David was amazed at the position which God had given to him and all other human beings. He was amazed at the attention that God was paying to him. And he was saying how all things exist for us to control and to use. Now, along that line, let me just throw a few more things out here. There are some amazing adjustments of life in our planet that say that whoever made this thing did care about us and about all of creation. You know, we, we have the movement of the waters, uh, the tidal movement of the, of the seas and all that. That's because of the moon and the proximity of the moon around us. And the size and the distance of our moon from the earth is just about right to keep that 
agitation, that washing back and forth, the movement of waters. You know, waters will stagnate if they just set. By the moon moving around, there's kind of a, a movement of water all the time. It keeps our waters refreshed. It's just about the right, uh, right distance. If it was too far away, the water wouldn't move. It was much closer. Uh, our tides would be going in strange places. The size and distance of our sun from the earth is, is in the right zone for life. I mean, it could be maybe a mile or two closer or a mile or two further away. Wouldn't be too big of a difference. But the fact is, we're just about the right distance from the sun for, to sustain life. Just some amazing properties of water. Roughly three-fourths of our earth is covered with water. And water is a unique substance in, in, in our known world. It's the only substance which expands in its solid form. Everything, every other uh, physical substance that we know contracts as you diminish the temperature. As you lower the temperature, it contracts and gets smaller. And water does that down to about 30 degrees, 28, 29 degrees, it will contract. But from about 28 degrees on down, it begins to expand again. And you may not think that's, uh, that's all that important. But, uh, but it is. It actually is very important because if water continued to contract as it froze, it would become heavier than the water it was floating in. It would go to the bottom. Think about uh, a huge layer of ice that goes straight to the bottom. It's crushing all the, uh, all the fish, all, all, the, all the creatures that live in the sea because the ice goes down. Well, that's not the way it is. I, I, water is one of those things that doesn't do that. It's amazing, and that, that's what God has covered our world with. Water is like a shock absorber for temperature. It absorbs and releases uh, heat more slowly than land masses, and that's one of the things that moderates our temperatures here on planet Earth. And there are some amazing adjustments of life for creatures, uh, just small, simple creatures. You know, that, there's that verse in Matthew chapter 10 where God says, you know, if a, if a sparrow falls to the ground, and he said, I know about it. Not a sparrow can fall to the ground. Jesus says this about his father. A sparrow can't even fall to the ground unless my father knows about it. And then I think, uh, yeah, God is paying attention. There's, there's a creature called the archer fish. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I, I run onto these uh, Moody Science Bible films. They, they were just amazing to me. Um, and this was one of the things that came up, and I, I read that. And the archer fish, I think I've got a slide here. And what the archer fish is, he, uh, the archer fish has the ability to swim along underwater, and he sees his food above water on a branch or a limb or whatever, and he's able to spit, <laughs> spit a small drop of water out and knock his food off and get it to the water, and he goes up and sucks it in. That's how he feeds himself. That's great. Now, you might not think that's such a big deal, but have you ever tried to touch something in water uh, it's never where you're putting your hand in. There's a refraction that happens when, you put your, uh, uh, when you're trying to touch something. It's in the water, or you're looking from water or looking out. This fish, somehow or the other, has learned how to calculate exactly where everything is, regardless of the angle. If you're looking straight up, it is, that bug is exactly where it is. But if you're looking from the side, the archer fish is able to calculate the refraction and hit the bug and then go get his dinner. I don't know where those things, those things come from, except somehow they're designed. They're part of the creation. There's a, there's a little bird called the golden plover, and there's several subspecies of, of golden plovers. But this is, this is a picture of, of that little bird. Uh, 
And this little bird um, spends its summers in Siberia, the Arctic Circle. And it winters uh, far to the south. Uh, the various subspecies have their own places where they go. And I put up the migration routes here. I just want you to see this. In the blue area up there, that's where, those little, that's where that little bird likes to go and lay his eggs and hatch, it, hatch them out and, and bring his young. And then when winter comes, they migrate south. Some of them go down to Argentina. Some go to various, like I say, they're subspecies of, the, of this little bird. But there's one little subspecies called the Pacific Golden Plover, who's just a, a very interesting guy. He goes up north of, north of Alaska to the Arctic Circle, lays his eggs, 24 days for him to hatch out. And, of course, you know, summer's pretty short when you get to the Arctic Circle. They lay their eggs, they hatch them out, the young come, and sometimes the parents have to leave before, uh, before the young are ready to fly. They're, they're not quite developed enough to do that. They're, they're developed enough to uh, feed themselves, to hunt food and all that. And mom and dad will take off. And this golden plovers fly. There's one subspecies that will fly all the way from Siberia to the Hawaiian Islands. That's the middle of the, of the Pacific. 88 hours, one way just as fast as they can, which is kind of an ama amazing in itself. But the parents will leave the young right there and fly to Hawaii. Now, you, it, it's not, Hawaii is, is a nice sized thing, but you could miss it pretty easy <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing. But, uh, but those young, without ever having made this trip, build themselves up physically for the trip eat their food, take off, and fly 88 hours, having never made the trip, and will land within a square of about the size of this room and meet their parents in Hawaii. Where does that stuff come from? How does that happen? Uh, there's no such, you can't do natural selection for that kind of thing, because if you don't get it right the first time, you're dead. You've missed it, okay? Natural selection cannot explain that sort of thing. We're talking about a creative power, something that's been put within this bird. And, and I'm just talking about the adjustments of life. There are things about our world that says that the God who made us cares about us. Whoever made this place cares about us. First Peter 5 and 7, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. The Bible tells us he cares for us. The most powerful argument that the atheist has is the existence of evil and suffering and death and disease and tragedy. The atheist says to us, if there is a God, why does your God let all these terrible things happen? Amen. I have to say, I, that one gives me pause. I, that's a hard one for me to deal with. But the Bible explains suffering and death and disease. It tells us it's all the result of sin the result of the activity of Satan, that God allows it, but he does not directly cause it. And ultimately, he's going to do away. God will do away with Satan and sin and suffering and death and all that stuff that makes life miserable here. But for now, we live in a world with a staggering amount of suffering. But God has given us something that puts all suffering and disease and death in a different light, in a different perspective. God has given us something. And that is the cross. This has always helped me, and I, I hope it helps you. There's a lot of things that happen in this world that we just don't understand. They're very confusing. God, if you're there, why are you letting this happen? Why don't you do something? 
If you're all powerful and you really love us, how could you let this stuff happen? When things are bad, we always ask why. And the way it is with God, I, I don't know if you noticed this in the book of Job, but I, I did. God didn't give uh, Job uh, any answers. God gave Job a bunch of questions. Did you notice that? He did show up. He gave him a bunch of questions. Never really gave him an answer for all the whys that he had, uh, had for him. But here's what God has done. He hasn't told us why. What God has given us is the cross. And there's nothing that says God loves us more than what he did for us on the cross. Everything looks different when you look at it through the lens of the cross. You have to take that into account. And we may not understand, we may be confused about a lot of things that happen here, but we can know this. We can know that he loves us. And somehow he's going to make things right. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2 and 9. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. There is a God. To deny that is to put yourself at odds with all of creation. And to accept that is to make possible a relationship with that God, a personal relationship. Hebrews 11 and 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to him must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Maybe there is someone here this morning who would like to finally say, yes, I do believe in God. I believe in his son. I believe in the cross. I believe in all of that, and I'm ready to become a Christian today. And when we sing this hymn of invitation, we're inviting you to come before us, to confess your faith, to repent of your sins, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then to become a child of God in that way. If you need to respond, please do.